Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. Oh, hey, it's your water bottle that does not fit in your car's cup holder. Why? 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 Allie Ward. It's another fresh episode. I've been wanting to do this one since I saw a mountain goat in Glacier National Park when I was 12 even though back then podcasts did not exist. But I started to Google who studies mountain goats up in Montana and all roads led to this wildlife biologist who works with the Montana Fish and Wildlife and Parks Department to monitor and study these artidactyls, which are even-toed ungulates. Seeing one in the wild is like spotting a pegasus. And so if your job involves goat safaris for money, what kind of life do you even have? We're going to find out. But first, thank you to everyone who supports the show at patreon.com slash ologies. It costs a buck a month to join, and then you can submit questions to the ologists before the interview. Thank you to everyone who is passing the show around, friends, and rating and subscribing. That helps so much. Leaving reviews also helps. Plus, I read them all. And as proof, thank you this week to Maddash1213, who wrote this review. This show satisfies my curiosity even when I don't think I'm going to give a crap about a certain ology. I always end up caring. Mad Dash 1213, start caring about goats now. Okay, oriamnology. This derives from the Greek for lamb of the mountains. And I'm going to be honest, with one species of mountain goat in the world, in one genus, oriamnos, there wasn't a better word for this ology. But also, oriamnology turns up in zero internet returns. No one apparently has ever used it. So the word begins with this very episode. What about caprology, you ask, the study of goats? Well, caprology is already defined as the study of porn or of feces. Go figure. And also mountain goats, are you ready for this? You're going to talk about this at every cocktail party you ever go to. They're not goats. They're not. We're going to get into it. Plus, why are they so woolly? how to be romanced by a mountain goat if you too are a mountain goat, the physics of climbing up sheer cliff faces, how big can these fuckers get? What happens when you airlift a goat, volunteering in the name of goathood, the dangers of a goat hunt, eagle attacks, the finest goat robes ever worn, extinct species, the softest snoot in the animal kingdom, the most delicious hiking trails, and more with biologist and oriamnologist, Julie Cunningham. I'm Julie Cunningham. I use she, her, hers. Y'all want to get right into it? Let's get right into it. Oh, sure. I got my undergraduate in wildlife biology at University of Montana, and mm -hmm. then I got my master's degree in fish and wildlife management from Montana State University. Did you specialize in goats at the time, or how did you find your niche in mountain goats? Well, that's interesting. I'm a, I'm a broadcast management biologist, so even though I enjoy mountain goats tremendously and have uh, management responsibility for quite a, a wonderful, healthy population of mountain goats, I'm kind of a big game biologist. Most of my work is with ungulates in general. So my master's work, it began, it's kind of a circuitous route. It began with studying elk and wolves, but the wolf pack I was studying was eliminated after getting a little too much into livestock. So then my master's shifted and I worked with uh, bison. 
So I have definitely the background in, in ungulates, and I've always really enjoyed working with ungulates in general. And so I've sure been enjoying working as much as I can with mountain goats. As a wildlife biologist who also works with game, what's it like for you to see populations go up and then go down and, and how they interface with human activity? Oh my gosh, that's all part of the uh, the excitement and the enjoyment. We always say it's the science and the art of wildlife management speculating on why a population goes up or down, gathering the information and the data and communicating with our publics about it. That's all part of the job. Wildlife populations are going to ebb and flow and um, wildlife management has to be responsive to that with the number of licenses we issue. Mm -hmm. How are mountain goats doing right now? Great question. In different parts of their range, they're doing very differently. I happen to be managing mountain goat populations that are not native. They were introduced. So now they are Montana goats. They come from Montana populations. But historically, we don't think mountain goats existed in the mountain ranges where I manage goats. The places where I'm managing goats on the whole, they're doing very well. And we're sustaining reasonable harvest rates, great opportunities for people to come and view and enjoy mountain goats. Now, in places where mountain goats are native, they're not always doing great. And that's kind of a big topic of conversation, communication, and, and research recently is, is why is that? Well, I had no idea that there were introduced mountain goat populations. Where were they introduced from and who introduced them? Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. If you ever get into a book called Back from the Brink, it's a big PBS episode. There's also a book called Montana's Wildlife Legacy. They have pictures. Goats were captured and put in rafts. They were put in airplanes. They were put in panniers on the sides of horses. Our predecessors in the 1940s through 1960s in particular were focused on wildlife restoration. And part of what they did was just move these animals across the country. They were loaded into crude wooden crates on a two-wheel horse cart and taken to the nearest road for transfer to a pickup truck. Then they were hauled 300 miles and released at Sweetgrass Creek in the Crazy Mountains. And we never lost any in moving them, which is pretty remarkable. That was from the 2007 PBS documentary, Back from the Brink. It's wild, people. It's wild. Oh, wow. What happens if they are not native, but they've been put in that habitat? Do they thrive there? Does that mess up the rest of the ecology? I mean, obviously, probably people were making decisions differently in the 40s than we do now, you know, 80 years later. Um, do you think that's a decision that they would have made today? I think in Montana, we're pretty supportive of our introduced goat populations. We view them a little bit as a potential rescue herd or source herd, potentially to restore places where they're struggling in our native herds. Mm. That means if shit goes down with the endemic herds, they have the introduced herds on backup, kind of like a dugout of hairy, musky ungulates. But you ask a great question, and I'll tell you, different biologists in different jurisdictions across the Rocky Mountain West would answer your question differently. There are some places where folks are concerned that mountain goats could be challenging the habitat in some places or could be a potential source of disease for native bighorn sheep herds. Mountain goats and bighorn are related and they share the same respiratory pathogens. So there are some places you might hear about, like in Grand Teton National Park, where introduced goats are considered very differently than we do here in southwest Montana as our state wildlife management agency. I'll tell you, I've got in the Madison Range, bighorn sheep and mountain goats are, are coexisting and have for, for quite some time, and we have huntable populations. I don't have concerns about the alpine vegetation. You know, we've been exploring that in the Bridger Mountains. There are some endangered plant species. I've even gotten to document a couple and send those sightings into our Montana Natural Heritage Program, which tracks these plants. But there's no indication that goats are causing any resource damage in, in any of the areas that I manage, nor is there indication that they're a significant source uh, of a spread to disease to our native sheep herds. So it's, it's great having healthy populations here. And in the future, we could potentially use these herds to help restore native herds where they're struggling. Okay, so where are they struggling? According to a jaunty little 2017 paper titled Status of Montana's Mountain Goats, a Synthesis of Management Data and Field Biologist Perspectives, native ranges have about 
1,100 goats, which is only about a third or a quarter of the goats they had in the 1950s. And in British Columbia, First Nations, the Kittasu Hai Hai members, have voluntarily stopped harvesting mountain goats to avoid endangering them. And they're asking the provincial government to like pump the brakes on the hunting tags for non-residents. But in some places where the Oriamnos genus is introduced, they're thriving. Some say thriving a little too much, but more on that in a bit. Because first, let's back up. What even are they? What are these things? What exactly is a mountain goat? From what I understand, it's not a goat. Is that true? Um, Correct. So mountain goats are in the family Bovidae. Mm -hmm. They're in the subfamily Caprinae. Now, they're not in the same genus as domestic goats. They're in their own genus, which is Oriamnos. Mm-hmm. Uh, domestic goats are in the genus Capra. What exactly is that genus? Like, why are they a kind of a separate genus? And what's different about them than the goats we might see, like the petting zoo? Ooh, okay. Mountain goats evolved in North America, whereas domestic goats are an old world species. Mountain goats are a new world species. So they're an evolutionary distant. And there used to be another species of Oreomnos that existed in North America, but it went extinct in the Pleistocene extensions, I believe, the Ice Age. It's Latin name Oreomnos americanus. It's an American mountain goat, and it's existed here for, um, I, I We'd have to look it up uh, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of years. So there's quite a bit of evolution that's uh, separated them. Just a side note. So the extinct ones are called Harrington's Mountain Goat, which vanished from their territory in the American Southwest around 13,000 years ago. And in the 1930s, there were some folks poking around the Smith Creek Cave in Nevada, and they were like, what the fuck is this long-faced goat skull? which is a question that was answered via the 1937 bulletin titled A New Mountain Goat from the Quaternary of Smith Creek Cave, Nevada. Just a side note to this side note. So this smaller, longer, snooted, extinct mountain goat lived around the same time as a giant ground-dwelling sloth that used to roam parts of California that are now Walmarts and nail salons. But back to today's mountain goats. Where are they? So they live west of the Continental Divide, which tends to follow the peaks of the Rocky Mountains and the Andes in South America. Truth be told, I'm going to confess to you, I always confused the Continental Divide with the tropics of Capricorn and Cancer. But those are totally different kind of global belly bands that have nothing to do with the Continental Divide. So west of this Great Divide, These beautiful goaty beasts romp up parts of Washington and Oregon and Montana and up the Canadian Rockies into Alaska, naturally. But in 1947, we started dumping goats all kinds of places, kind of like ungulate confetti for sport hunting. And so now there are introduced populations in Colorado, Utah, Montana, and Washington. So how do we know where they are now? Because there are Julie's. Can you tell me a little bit about what your field work is like? I understand that it might involve helicopters. Yeah, absolutely. So in general, I'm responsible for monitoring all the different ungulate populations in my jurisdiction. So that includes mountain goats and bighorn sheep. It includes white-tailed deer and mule deer and pronghorn, and it includes elk. So I'm always in the air trying to count and survey these species. Mountain goats are particularly challenging. They use caves sometimes, they use cracks and rocks, they hide under trees, and they have the habit of staying at the highest of elevations. And so they don't come down like elk will come down into a field and they'll see 500 elk or 3,000 elk in a group. But you're not going to miss that. You can count that. But what goats do is they have a more solitary lifestyle, either by themselves or in small groups. And at these high elevations, it makes them really difficult to survey and follow. So we have a aircraft division, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, so we definitely get after them with our great helicopter pilots. Julie says that they use helicopters and also community science, just volunteer goat spotters getting together a few times a year, meeting in the warmth of a summer morning with some binocs and some camelbacks, and then dispersing and doing ground-based counts for scientists, for oreomnologists. And I interface with the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, who helped me get fantastic volunteers together. We do some trainings about how to tell nannies from billies, and then we coordinate. We all go out into different assigned areas on the same day at the same time and Mm -hmm. document how many mountain goats we see. 
I've had just phenomenal luck with that method, helping us count and classify the number of goats we have. And that's just the counting phase. We also have a mountain goat research project going on right now. And that's been really adventurous. We've used a mountain goat capture crew from a, a helicopter base where they use net guns in the winter, capture goats, and we put our collars on them. We do disease testing work and things like that. And then we've also done some what they call clover traps, fox traps, essentially, where goats can come into salt bait in the summer. And then we can capture them, collar them, and follow them that way. And that summer field work has been pretty exciting and led to some of the strangest encounters I've had in the field. What happened? Well, so in one site, mountain goats are completely nocturnal. So we'll be staked out at night at the trap site so that you pull the string and drop the door and catch just the goat you want. So you're not recapturing a collared goat or you're not capturing a kid or separating a kid from a nanny. And we can be immediately responsive. So we're sitting out there in the dark all night and... What's uh, interesting, we're being all quiet and still, but the Bridge of Mountains have an enormous amount of human recreation. And that's one of the things we're trying to study is how are these elusive mountain ungulates handling the pressures of human recreation? So what really got me was we're staying at a clover trap at a site. There's no official trail to the site, but there's a pretty well-known unofficial trail. And then there's a lake about three miles in into the backcountry. Not, not super easy to get to either. It's quite steep getting in and out. And we're sitting by the clover trap all quiet and ready for goats to come in. Be very, very quiet. And I knew there were people recreating in the basin behind me, but I, I didn't start realizing the volume of it until I started really taking notice. And the thing that made me take notice was a gentleman came into our camp and loudly said, hey, you guys seen a fat chihuahua and a sweater waddle through here? Oh, no. It got away and it's hiding in some rocks. And so he had a search party for this lost chihuahua. And I started looking around. How many people are in this basin? And as I looked around, I saw two people rock climbing on one mountain face beside me where I'd seen Billy's earlier that day. I saw two people with big film equipment and a boom up on the Bridger Ridge. I saw... I think about two dozen hikers. There were two people operating drones. Oh. There were 10 loose dogs, including that fat chihuahua running through the basin. There were six other parties camped. There were four people swimming naked in the lake. And one guy was camping with his house cat. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. This was all at once in the <laughs> all same? The same day. And uh, so it, it, it was, uh, we didn't get any mountain goats that day, but oh. as, as the recreation dispersed after the weekend, goats did return to the basin and we were able to capture them. But what is fascinating is there are places where mountain goats can be quite distressed by that behavior, perhaps particularly drones. Go one of goats' major predators are golden eagles will take kids and they'll knock the kids off of cliffs. Mm. So goats are really attuned to predation risk from above. So the drones concern me perhaps most of all of this, but of course, loose, loose dogs can be a challenge too. But one of the things that amazes me is in the same mountain range, you can get so close to a mountain goat, you could touch it. Now, obviously we don't advise that. No, no, don't touch. But the point is, is they're very habituated in some areas. In other areas, they can be quite disturbed. And that's one of the things we're going to try to look at with our collars mm -hmm. is with that amount of recreation pressure, these goats don't have anywhere to go but up. And there's people all over the up. So mm -hmm. where do the goats go and how do they handle this? And so we'll be looking closer at that. Did you guys ever find the chihuahua? We did. Oh, you it did? It came out. <laughs> the chihuahua came out and was, was retrieved. I was hoping it didn't find the salt lick in your clover trap. No, we were, we were watching. That's one of the reasons we monitor the trap. We wouldn't want the public to come upon a goat in a trap, and nor would we want to catch her somebody's chihuahua. Mm -hmm. Well, did anything change with the pandemic, with more people just saying, you know, fuck it, I'm going to go outside more? Did that have any impact at all on goats, or was that actual observation, or did I just make it up? Well, I won't be able to really say it's because of the pandemic or not. But one thing in Bozeman, we certainly did notice during the pandemic spikes in our real estate. As folks uh, learned, this was an attractive place where they could have a lot of space and a lot of recreation mm. um, and work online. The remote working definitely increased interest in moving to places like Bozeman for all these great outdoor amenities that we have. And I'll say I did do two years of, of mountain goat following, trapping, counting, and, and it, it just seems recreation's going up and up and up. And it's, it's great. Folks are getting out and enjoying their public lands and wildlife resources. But yeah, if there's ways that we can uh, 
can do it sustainably. Fortunately, I can tell you right now, the mountain goat herd and the bridgers, despite all the chihuahuas and drones and dogs, they're they're doing well. Well, I was going to ask with the helicopter counts and mm-hmm. with their hyper awareness of predation from above, yeah. do you ever use drones to count them or is that just too close to an eagle? But if you're in a helicopter, you've got more space from them. Oh, that, yeah. The drones were learning more about how to use them in wildlife surveys in the agency. Currently, I haven't been using drones for any survey and inventory effort. Goats do respond to our helicopter by, you know, they'll they'll run away or they'll get into the trees or cracks, but we only survey them about every two years with the helicopter. And our, like I say, our wildlife pilots are just phenomenal. We watch and make sure that no, nothing goes off any cliffs or gets hurt. We're not pushing them, nor are we harassing them. We get a count, get in and out. So they're disturbed for a very short period of time. So we're very cognizant of the animal behavior when we fly. It's just when I've got an enormous wilderness area, the Lee Metcalf wilderness area and the Spanish Peaks wilderness area. We fly over to get these counts. It's so much spatial area. It would be not really appropriate for drone surveys in some of these areas. Areas, but the helicopter makes a great platform to observe these critters. So I googled Lee Metcalf Wilderness, and just outside Missoula lie a quarter million acres of alpine beauty. No buildings or roads, but also the highest population density of grizzly bears in the 48 states. And an image search of Lee Metcalf Wilderness just returns JPEGs that look like a desk calendar. It just, it every thing is beautiful. So let's say that you wanted to have a bird's eye view and just like pop into a chopper with a date for like an hour. That would set you back several thousand dollars. So for a better return on your investment, you could just dedicate your life's work to mountain goat ecology. You know, you were mentioning that sometimes they are living in caves or in other crevices. What is a mountain goat's home like? Do they even live in small herds at all? Or you said they're pretty solitary? Yeah, they will live anything from one. Even a nanny could be found by herself. But usually nannies will hang out with related nannies, other nannies and kids, young billies, you know, one or two year old billies might hang with a herd. He lives with his mother. I have counted a herd myself that was 82 animals strong, which is an enormous herd for mountain goats. But more often than not, you'll find it. Billies will hang in a small group, you know, three or five guys hanging together. They stay separate from the nannies and kids often until mating season comes around. Oh, wow. But yeah, they're home. They are amazing. They stay up at the rockiest, highest elevations you'll find. And they'll often stay there through wintertime. What you'll find is you'll get these windswept slopes. And they'll be up there eating the lichen, any any little grass and forbs that are sticking through the, the snow. Sometimes they can come down into tree cover. And so we're learning a little bit more about that. But obviously they're harder to see when they're in those when they're in those trees. And why doesn't their fur change color in the summer mm-hmm. or the winter? I don't know why it doesn't change color. Um, you know, color changing has been observed in things like ermine or snowshoe hairs. What I do see is there's an enormous change in the thickness of their fur. And I talk about that with the, the hunters that pursue the goats is come November, which is a very difficult time to go out in the, the mountains and, and get a goat because of the snows that one has to contend with to get up there. November goats are so thick and furry and shaggy, whereas summer goats are much more sleek. So they definitely have a winter coat and a summer coat, and they're, they're very different. Just a side note. So that wardrobe change is called seasonal coat color, SCC molting. And really only 21 species that we know of do this. I thought there were tons more, but only like 21, including the Arctic fox, some weasels and hares, and the Siberian hamster, which made me realize that, yes, out in the wild, there are hamsters, and I like that. But what causes them to color change? Well, they say that the duration of sunlight, not the temperature, is the main driver. Well, with more heat on Earth and less snow, there's a camouflage mismatch that puts these animals at risk. And they're showing up in all white well after Labor Day into the winter when there should be snow. But because of increasing temperatures, the landscape is still set in an autumn palette of ochres and browns, which is a faux pas on our part, and that can cost these color-changing animals their lives. But either way, goats, they don't change color. And scientists behind a 2020 goat coat 
Malt study collected some dated tourist photos from nearly 70 years back up until now, and they're analyzing how thick their coats were compared to now, like painstaking ecological progress pics cobbled together from people's vacation snapshots. And given that the goats wear their heavier coats October through April, the paper threw a little summer shade, noting that, quote, some professional photographers expressed preference for photographing goats in winter months when the animals are, quote, more photogenic. And I can just feel the eye roll of the biologist typing that. Oh, speaking of feeling, um, is it soft? Very soft. It yep. is? <laughs> yeah. You get to pet them probably while you're collaring them, right? Well, I try not to take too much time, yeah. um, you know, but uh, one thing I have I, done is collected fur off of the bushes as, oh. as the goats shed. So I've got quite some yarn balls in my, in my garage. <laughs> That's amazing. Have you ever knitted anything with it? No, I don't know how to do anything like that. I'm not very crafty, <laughs> but it's phenomenal to be able to handle and touch these animals. But yeah, when we do capture work, we try to have as much respect for the animal as possible. One of our wildlife veterinarians used to tell me when we capture, they said, oh, it's such an instinct for people to want to pat the animal. And they're like, but patting like calms down your dog, not a wild animal. When you touch it, it it doesn't like it. It doesn't calm them down. We really try to minimize minimize handling. But of course, it is fun to observe how, how the different ungulates feel. If you want to admire mountain goat textiles, and I suggest you do, look up Terry Rofkar, who's a member of the Tlingit tribe of Southeast Alaska. And in a 2014 paper, Managing and Harvesting Mountain Goats for Traditional Purposes by Indigenous User Groups for a Symposium of the Wild Sheep and Goat Council, Terry wrote, Our clan has been known for its weaving skills for thousands of years, and I work toward continuing that legacy. The Tlingit tribe has traditionally used mountain goat wool in our weaving. One robe, she notes, might take her 900 hours to weave. And Terry explained, quote, it took me 17 and a half years to gather enough wool to weave one robe using every wool collection method. There is natural science and biology needed to harvest the mountain goat wool. And she also wrote that her tribe had access to just three hunting permits per year and that they carried numerous restrictions. And she concluded, I would like to encourage agencies and individuals to work together to create sustainable relationships with the animals in their respective homes. Relationship, she writes, by definition, is not preservation. Therefore, maintaining a sustainable relationship can describe a different management methodology than natural resource management. This small change, she says, can make the difference between a purely economical equation and a more holistic environmental decision. We all know relationships can be complicated she concludes. Anyway, her woven mountain goat robes are gorgeous. They're creamy white and thick and heavy with geometric accents and long, dark tassels that swing from the shoulder blades. And one of her robes even has a large woven design of a mountain goat DNA double helix. And Terry received an honorary doctorate from the University of Alaska in 2015 at the age of 59 years old. And a year later, her local Alaskan newspaper reported that Tlingit Weaver... Terry Rofkar walked into the forest in the early morning hours of December 2nd, 2016 from cancer. She was 60. But her knotted weaving tied the past to the future. And if you get a chance to see some of her robes, you will appreciate a mountain goat all the more. I'll tell you the softest thing I've ever touched is the nose of a moose, though. Moose oh, noses are what? enormously soft and squishy. What? When did you get to touch a moose <laughs> nose? Most often uh, harvested moose. Oh uh, but un- unfortunately, also moose, moose die of an enormous number of diseases, but they have got the squishiest noses. There's so much cartilage in there because oh. of how they forage and, and their specializations. But the squishiest, softest thing is a moose's nose. Any student that ever works for me is has uh, will laugh about this if they listen to this podcast because they'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember Julie telling me, oh, grab that moose nose. You need to squish that. We've finally found what is the most boopable animal, the most boopable nose. <laughs> Is a moose. A wildlife biologist got us a skinny. Boop. Well, what about, speaking of foraging, I, you, you mentioned mountain goats in November. What are they eating in November, especially in Montana where it snows so much? How are they finding food during those times of the, of the year? Yeah, we've got windy mountain peaks and it blows the snow off of them. And so, yeah, all those little grasses, forbs, lichens that poke through and they'll be finding things to forage on. They're incredible. <laughs> And when you, you do get to get up close and personal, stinky. Stinky. What's the stinky level? 
I'm not a good one to ask about that. I, you know, there's a term nose blind. I've had to <laughs> necropsy some really stinky things in my life. And so you can, you can smell them though, like goats, sheep, elk. They all have, I think it's a very pleasant kind of barnyard odor. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing unpleasant at all. Ask the internet about the smell and several websites will serve up the same copy pasted fact bite that quote, bucks stink with a strong musky odor, which comes from the scent glands on their head and their urine, which they spray on their face, beards, front legs, and chest. Intrigued, I fact-checked this via a 1964 Journal of Mammalogy paper titled On the Rutting Behavior of the Mountain Goat, and was treated to the oriamnological account that, quote, males showed dirt patches on the rump, as well as soiled trousers and belly. The soiled males emit, to human noses, an offensive odor. Also, if you ever need an adjective that means goaty, you can say hircine, H-I-R-C-I-N-E, hircine means goaty. So if you stunk your own belly and trousers for love, that's hircine fashion. What about their shoes? Okay, obviously huge questions people ask you must Mm -hmm. be, how are they stuck to the side of a mountain face in windy conditions. How are their hooves doing it? Oh, yeah, their hooves are great. They've got these kind of hard edges, but soft pads, and it helps them balance, you know, just like uh, if you guys ever rock climb and you put on your special climbing shoes, it's kind of like goats have that on their hooves. So that's the other thing. It's fun that you mentioned that because when I take students out with me at hunter check stations, if you ever have a hunter harvested goat, I have a, just like I said with a moose, I'm like, squish the moose's nose. And if a goat comes through, I'm like, and you guys have got to look at these goat hooves because they are really uniquely adapted for that kind of mountain life and to be able to hang on those cliff edges. How does one small move not send them off the mountain face? Because I've yeah. seen goats and they, they're not light animals. They must weigh like a no. hundred and some pounds, right? Yeah, yeah. For trivia fiends, the average weight of a mountain goat is between 150 and 300 pounds. But one heavenly chonk tipped the scales at 385. That's 174 kilos of just pure cliffside stink. So how are they not just having a wrong move and gravity takes them right off? You know what's fun is I think they learn a lot when they're kids. Mama mountain goat stays below her kid a lot of the time when they're in precarious terrain. And the kid is, uh, is learning and practicing. And if it falls, mom's body is there to, to catch it. Wow. I've uh, definitely observed, you'll get a kick out of this. We, we drugged a, a nanny, put a collar on her. She had a yearling with her and a kid. So sometimes yearlings will stay with their, with their mom. So the yearling is one and a half year old. And the, the kids, of course, are just born that spring. So um, it's kind of like big brother and little brother here. We, when we released the mom, the, the little kid ran up to her, ma, ma, and made this little bawing noise. It was adorable. And mom was recovering. She just got done with getting a collar on. So it was a mild sedation. She's mm-hmm. on her feet. And she's, she's drinking water from a, from a snowbank. She's pretty groggy, you know, still getting her feet under her. We're watching. Uh, she's, she's licking this water. The yearling was harassing the kid. And the mom had to go, you know, kind of poke the yearling with her with her horns a little bit to get him to knock it off. Because oh. uh, goats do, you know, social order, dominance, whatnot. But what I watched also was as the herd moved off, there were places where the kid struggled. And so the yearling had no problem, just like any show-off big brother. He's like, yeah, look at me, you know, and he's jumping <laughs> in. But they, when the kid struggled and kind of bleeded from mom, mom went back, got the kid, showed him a way around. And so I think that uh, when you ask about how do they do it, I think that there's definitely some learning. So obviously there's some evolution with the hooves and things like that. But I think there's some experiential learning as, as well, both from social learning from mom and big brother and the practice that they get bouncing around those mountains when they're the, the goat alliance calls them little mountain marshmallows. Oh my gosh. How cute. Yeah. The kids are kind of adorable. Oh, and you know, the, how pointy are the hooves? Cause I picture them like stiletto heels in order to just like wedge into crevices, but how big is a, is a mountain goat hoof? Oh, they're actually pretty big and pretty round. You can tell the difference between an elk or a deer hoof has got a sharp point at the top and mountain goats are a little more, um, rectangular, blocky. They're more blocky than you'd think. It's just those hard edges around the sides that that they can use to really to really grab onto. 
Okay, so first off, remember, these are artidactyls. These are even-toed ungulates. So a mountain goat hoof is really kind of a cloven situation, like a pair of tongs that can spread apart to get more traction. And the hoof tips are pointy, the toe pads are textured for kind of a rubbery grip, and then the dew claws behind those two front toes also help grip surfaces. So the whole square shebang is kind of like an arcade claw machine, but more reliable in life-threatening situations. How are they scaling straight up cliffs. For years, the answer was like, no one even knows. Until a few scientists watched a hiker's two-minute YouTube footage taken in the Canadian Rockies and analyzed the goat shit out of it. They wrote a whole paper in 2016 titled, A Descriptive Analysis of the Climbing Mechanics of a Mountain Goat, and showed that the hind limbs push the goat up and then their incredibly ripped shoulders do superhuman pull-ups up the cliffs. But The secret sauce is a strong neck that locks their elbows that shifts the center of mass. So a thick neck gets that job done. Let a goat be your fitzbo. Let's stop photoshopping our trapezius muscles from bikini photos, okay? We need those. Oh, also, mountain goats can jump almost 12 feet at a time. And they do all of this nude, wearing pee as a cologne, or literally raising kids up a cliff. Do they have any issues going too high in elevation where the air is too thin? Because I've tried to jog in the mountains and it did not go well. How are they doing it? (laughs) Oh, I'm sure they must be really uh, evolved for that. I mean, Montana elevations aren't what you'll find in in some places like Alaska or Colorado. We don't have the 14ers, but here we've got 12,000 foot peaks and they seem to navigate them with a plum. What about the harvest season? What time of the year is that open and what are like sustainable hunting practices? Yeah. So as a wildlife biologist, I work really hard to count, survey, and inventory the mountain goat populations that I manage and have a defensible amount of uh, licenses available. So what that means is there's published sustainable harvest rates. And in some places in native herds, the best science indicates you want a 3% or less. But I have introduced herds, which have grown exponentially, which are monumentally successful in some ways. Their their populations are are growing. They can sustain a a higher harvest rate. I'll maintain a 4 to 7% harvest rate on observed goats. Now, like we talked about earlier, goats are difficult to observe. So we know there's always more goats out there than I'm observing. Mm -hmm. That's a given. What we don't know is how many more goats are out there than I'm observing. Mm -hmm. But if I use my minimum observed count, and set my harvest rates from that, I can guarantee that that is a sustainable rate. And so part of that, of course, is keeping on top of these populations and serving them as often as I can. So that's how I come up with a harvest rate. So in introduced areas, populations are A, higher than they ever would be naturally, because any goats there is more than zero goats, according to my math. And in those introduced areas, they're doing pretty well. Too well, some might argue. So Washington State wildlife ecologists have been bleeding and pleading to have the introduced species removed from the Olympic Peninsula and taken to their endemic ranges farther up north for years. And then in 2010, in Olympic National Park outside of Seattle, a mountain goat charged at a group of tourists and a 63-year-old hiker defended them but was gored in the thigh. The goat stood on top of the man as he bled out and he died. His family sued because this goat was infamous for being aggressive and locals called him Clahane Billy for his home ridge that he lived on. And years later, people still talk about this goat. There was a 2015 Seattle Met article by James Ross Gardner who wrote, I'm just going to read this verbatim. Clahane Billy was a big, mean son of a bitch. 370 pounds, bigger than two men, he liked to skulk along Switchback Trail in Olympic National Park and chase hikers with his horns. Two boulder-sized crescent razors, a wild animal unafraid of humans. So more on that goat in a bit. But in 2018, Washington wildlife biologists got the green light and the park's introduced mountain goats started getting netted, sedated, blindfolded, and dropped off farther north where they would naturally be. I think I'm sure they took the blindfold off when they're like, here you go. Nearly 300 of them have been relocated north and 16 went to zoos and a few dozen died in transit. But the goal was to be goatless by this fall. And any that they couldn't catch in their relocation efforts, the ecologist said, should be culled, i.e. just picked off by some skilled hunters. The next question is, 
We do have either sex tags in Montana because there's not a high degree of sexual dimorphism in goats. There's nuances in the structure of the horn and the body that can help a hunter detect whether it's a billy or a nanny. And there's an increasing body of data to help inform and educate and get hunters to practice this. The Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance produced a fantastic educational video to help hunters select. And over time, hunters are choosing to take more billies, which is great. Nannies takes a long time to get a nanny to a reproductive age, and then she'll only have one kid a year, if that, maybe one every other year. Mm. And they only live to about 14. So if you compare that to an elk, which could start having calves at age two, mountain goats have a delayed first reproduction, and they don't live as long as an elk. And so the number of females in harvest matters a lot. One billy can breed many, many, many nannies. So there's surplus males. You can, you can call the males surplus males. That The population will be fine if more billies are targeted than those reproductive females. So that's how we do harvest rates. And so how we do the timing of the hunt is we allow hunting from September through November to give the hunter the chance to go out and enjoy, you know, kind of a late Montana summer and, and uh, hunt at 10,000 feet before the snows come. Or a hunter can keep hunting all the way through November and get one that's going to have that thick winter coat. So it's a nice long hunting season. It's oriented to be after the point where the kid depends on the nanny. Now, there may be some decreased survival of a kid who loses its mom in September, but the kid's got a pretty good chance. It's not reliant on milk anymore, and it's probably part of a herd, one of those small family groups or herds. So it may still have some ability to survive. So we've really oriented it pretty specifically that way, that hunting season will be at a time when it's cooler. A hunter can get the meat and hide out intact to make sure they use the whole animal. And the kid's going to be able to, uh, most likely going to be able to survive. There's some places in Montana where it is illegal to harvest a nanny out of a group with kids in it. The reason that that rule is there is to to promote that kid's survival and help protect populations in places where they're where they're struggling a little bit and keep that sustainable harvest on the landscape. There's some places where there's actually nanny only licenses. We have one of those in the state. And the purpose of that is to keep the population at a healthy level so that if they get to a too high a level, we've had disease related die off events and we don't want that to happen. So in order to drop a population, we might want the females to be harvested. Oh, wow. So there's lots of little nuances to mountain goat management using hunting. That must be so fascinating for you every year to get the numbers and to see, okay, how how have things changed this year? What direction are they going? Absolutely. And you know, one of my favorite parts of my job is working with mountain goat and bighorn sheep hunters because these are kind of once in a lifetime licenses. If you draw a license, you don't get to put in again for seven years. Some people oh, have wow. put in 15, 20, 30 years in order to get the opportunity to hunt one of these amazing animals. So by the time they get this license, they are so excited mm -hmm. and they want to know everything. And they go scouting and they call me and they tell me stories like, while I was up there, I saw this or I saw that. And I get so much great information from these hunters and I almost get to live vicariously every year through their stories and adventures of their hunts. Our chief pilot has this great little saying. He flew in Alaska for a lot of years, and he's a, he's a diehard hunter. His name's Joe. And Joe has this great saying. He says, sheep go where men don't go. Goats go where sheep don't go. <laughs> and uh, I, I love that because go goats just go to these incredible places. And I've had hunters have to get ice climbing friends. And they all just get beautiful pictures and beautiful stories. And they come in with their mountain goat just so happy. And it's fun to be a small part of that process. Have you ever hunted a goat? Um, I, I have not. Oh, <laughs> Although I guess you are kind of like live tracking them, which is kind of the thrill of the hunt anyway. Absolutely. I yeah. tell you, I, I am a hunter. I've been a hunter my whole adult life. I hunt deer and elk and antelope every year. I put in for moose and bighorn. One of the reasons, there's a, maybe a couple of reasons I don't put in for mountain goats. One of them, I took quite a fall in my youth chasing mountain goats and bounced a few times <gasps> off of a mountain face. And <gasps> You know, I really like being in mountain goat country and watching them from down below. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't realize it. So it can be dangerous. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's there's been some, some stories of some hunters taking falls or, or outfitters taking falls mm -hmm. um, pursuing mountain goats. They live in steep, steep, rugged terrain. So sheep go where humans don't and goats 
go where sheep don't. And hunters try to go where the sheep and the humans don't to where the goats are. My point is, it's dangerous. And the sustainable management, or rather the relationship with mountain goats is important because the nannies typically just have one baby, not twins like cervids, like elk and deer do. And, you know, for people who maybe live in the city or who are a vegetarian or who can't imagine hunting, I've had some cervidologists on to talk about deer hunting and and a lot of conservationists actually do hunt, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a little bit of um, a surprise to some people. Can you explain at all what the appeal is for, say, hunting a mountain goat for people who are just like, what? Like what? I don't get it. Oh, I'd be so happy to talk about that because I would say, number one, we've talked so long now, even in this podcast, about how to be careful with hunting regulations to ensure the sustainability of harvest. And I think one thing I tell folks in cities, they might not know this. Everything I'm telling you about, the money comes from hunter dollars. The Pittman and Robertson Act of 1937 has a tax on firearms and hunter license dollars that come to the state. It goes right back to the conservation of wildlife species. It goes right into all this work I've told you I've gotten to do to help make sure mountain goats stay on this mountain. So yes, surprise, some conservationists hunt out of concern for the ecosystem, out of a love of the outdoors, and because in many states the revenue for hunting tags goes back into conservation programs. Others just find that hunting sits better for them for ethical reasons. It is interesting to think also of the way that we consume animals and that having an animal live its life in the wild as it should, and then, you know, say meeting a a certain fate with a hunter and then being eaten and appreciated versus an animal that's been bred and maybe lived in conditions that are really awful for its in the entirety of its life. And, and then maybe the difference in terms of the animal's welfare when you're hunting versus when you're maybe getting your meat from factory farming and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how many conservationists who are really connected to their field work too and, and biologists will look at which populations are healthy and then and hunt from there, which I think is so interesting. Oh, and can I ask you a couple questions from listeners who wrote in? Absolutely. They had great questions. Oh, also, we always donate to a charity of your choosing. And so it's the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, right? Well, you asked for a goat-related conservation organization, and I would like to just put in a quick second to say the RMGA have helped me for almost eight, nine years now to help get counts, to help me set responsible hunting licenses. The Goat Alliance take it really seriously, the conservation aspect of wildlife management and and, and hunting. So they're a 501c3 that's all about mountain goats. Perfect. So yes, that donation goes to the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, who helps so much in the community science aspect of the goat counts that keep their populations thriving in native range and managed in non-native ranges, all while they educate the public. So to join their community science goat counts next summer, you can head to goatalliance.org. And a donation to them was made possible by sponsors of Ologies. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy-to-use payment tools, so checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. Okay. Folks at patreon.com slash ologies, you sent in quality questions. Patrons, y'all are the greatest of all time. Questions from listeners. Taylor Paschel wrote in and said, I heard on a hike that you only really see females 
where do the males live? If you're on a hike, will you really only see females or are you seeing packs of billies too? Oh, I'll see the billies too. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's flim flam. We, we busted. 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 Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Several people, Allison, Denny, Paul Smith among them asked, uh, do you like the band, the mountain goats? I am drowning. There is no sign of land. You are coming down with me. I've never heard of a band called the Mountain Goats, but what? I will have to look this up. Oh my God, <laughs> Julie. I don't get out much. They're um, <laughs> a pretty big band. So maybe the Mountain Goats, if you're listening to this, uh, you next time they tour through Bozeman, you got to go see them. P.S. You may know the Mountain Goats from decades of just being a cool ass band, or perhaps you just became acquainted with them in 2021 when their song No Children went viral on TikTok to people choreographing their cats to it. But No Children has been a favorite song of Ology's editor and side husband, Jarrett, for years and years. Little fun fact, we broke up a few times before we got back together and got married. And this is one of those like, tear out your heart, throw it down a garbage disposal kinds of songs. And it's so good. As I researched this episode, Jarrett was watching a video of a live performance of No Children and he was weeping at his computer. So when it comes to our love for the mountain goats, we are not sheepish. Oh, okay. I will tell you though, if you Google the term goat, sheep, goat, there is a educational video by Banff National Park Mm -hmm. to tell people the difference between sheep and mountain goats, which they do in the form of a polka. (laughs) And it's phenomenal. I will look that up and I will treat the audience to a snippet of that. My coat is long and thick and white and helps to keep me warm. My hooves are black, my nose is black and black, my eyes and horns. Sheep and goats. Goats and sheep. That sounds amazing. Um, Mo Casey wants to know, are they playful? For some reason, they give me the impression that they like to party. Is that true? I've seen a little bit of that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, kids bouncing around. Uh, a friend of mine is a backcountry snowboarder. He sent me a video. He said it was a billy with whirling disease. It was a billy just rollicking around in a snowfield, feeling oh. its oats, I suppose. Oh. So I think when they when they have the energy, they're really fun to watch. I could watch them all day long. And and people do, right? They they grab binoculars and they just kind of mm-hmm. hang out and look at cliff sides. Well, I tell you, I sure do. I, I know my husband and son were out on hikes and my husband's like, which hike was that? And I'm like, oh, it's the one I got up. I was looking for mountain goats. He's like, you do that on every. <laughs> <laughs> when are you not going to look for mountain goats? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's so exciting to see one in the wild. I, I remember mm-hmm. one reason I was so excited to do this um, episode is because I went to Glacier as a kid and saw a mountain goat and it felt like mythical. It I, it was like seeing a unicorn. It was so exciting. <laughs> cool. Cool story. Um, and let's see, several people, Michael Swords, Emma Rose, Burberry, all wanted to know, in Emma's words, why do goats scream like that? Uh, and Burberry wanted to know why they sound like Will Ferrell when they yell. Do you ever hear? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, mountain goats are way more quiet than their domestic goat cousins. Ah, okay. I mean, I have spent a lot of time around mountain goats and I've heard the kids make that little bleating noise, that little meh. Or, you know, sometimes even when they're communicating and, and they're not under any pressure, it sounds more like a beep. Oh. And just these cute little noises, right? Um, I've heard them grunt and snort, but uh, but no, they're not very vocal. Oh, okay. Good to know. Uh, what about fighting? Um, mm-hmm. Joe Mueller wanted to know how common is it for them to get stuck while smashing their skulls together? Or do billies do that? Or is, is that a sheep thing? That's a sheep thing. Sheep are the head smashers. And it is interesting. They've been, they're being studied to how they don't get concussions. We've had uh, people from universities call us and ask for skulls that they could have so that they could analyze how they can sustain that kind of abuse, you know, to help. When you think about like football players getting traumatic brain injuries, how come Bighorn don't? Because they're they're the head-to-head smashers. What uh, you have to watch out for in mountain goats, if they drop their heads, they'll hook you from the side. So goats have uh, stabber horns, not, you know, so if you'd imagine, you know, sheep are the war hammers and goats are the swordsmen. (gasps) So if you see one ever kind of lower its head and shake it, you know, take its head at you like that, it, it, it'll come at from the side more. But they do, they can get poked, they can get injured. 
We've only had one collared animal die yet, and it was related to an injury. I can't tell you from what, but she did have a puncture wound in her side. Mm. I don't know if she took a fall or if she was stabbed. Um, but oh, wow. uh, yeah, so they, they definitely can sustain injuries, and those horns are sharp. Well, I have a very small world story for you, but we did an episode about that particular researcher who studies headbutting in sheep. This was the January 2022 bovine neuropathology headbutting episode with Dr. Nicole Ackermans. Oh, no way. Yes. I got a concussion in, uh, I fell down a flight of stairs at Christmas, got a concussion, did an episode about concussions, and then did a follow-up about concussions in sheep. And Dr. Nikki Ackermans is the one who studies that. I interviewed her. Y'all, Dr. Ackermans had submitted a question via Patreon for this goat episode. And she actually wrote in, Nikki wrote in to say, I once called a mountain goat person in search of some mountain goat brains for my headbutting project, as one does, only to be informed that they're not actually goats and they don't headbutt either. I was very ashamed that day on my lack of mountain goat knowledge. So that is directly from the source. That is fantastic. That is such a small world story. How fun. I know. So we have a whole episode about what exactly happens to their neurons. Now, if you like surviving head injuries, you're going to love those two concussion episodes, including the neuropathology one for humans from January 2022. And I'll link those in the show notes. Now, with all this talk about head injury, let's chat goat safety. Uh, Patron Kaylee Evans asked, are hikers a danger to them? Which was echoed by Elena Horn, who identifies as a resident of the Canadian Rockies, who's tired of seeing tourists feed, quote, the little deer. And first-time question asker Allie Brown, Jess Loeffler, and Ashley Bray all had safety on the brain too. And luckily, Julie has the following safety bulletin. I've been part of a science panel where we've talked about this from scientists from the Olympics, uh, folks from Glacier Park, Mark Beale, the biologist up there. We all talked about how to encourage humans to be safe around goats when they get habituated or tolerant of people. There's a little nuance there biologically between habituated and tolerant. One of the things we learned is obviously for people to please give goats space. Uh, like right now, it's really trending in the internet kind of mocking tourists who get too close to bison or pat bison mm-hmm. and they endanger themselves. So to prevent Instagram-induced tourist fatalities, the U.S. National Park Service just launched a campaign in July featuring the slogan, don't pet the fluffy cows. With goats, again, just like that gift space, uh, yield the high country, you know, make way for the goats. If a goat approaches you and you feel threatened, you know, definitely tell a fish and game person when you come out, a fish, wildlife, and parks biologist or whatever state you're in. But also make noise or throw stones, but do not poke a goat with your ski pole, um, given we were talking about how they kind of like to joust and, and stab. Yikes! Um, if you try to poke one, they might view that as an invitation to spar and poke back. So one of our recommendations from a group of us who talked about this was if you ever feel threatened, yeah, you can throw stones, be loud. But obviously, first step is just give, yield, yield to the goats, give them their space. Right. Oh, that's actually a great thing because Ale Guerrero, who's a first time question asker, wanted to know that many a hiker and climber friend have told them that goats lick pee to get their necessary salt content and that mountain goats in certain areas, popular peaks in the Pacific Northwest, have come to associate humans with the pee and have started to chase or wait for them at the tops of climbs and peaks. Is this true? Yes, I've heard it straight from the biologists who worked in those kind of environments. Yeah. No way. So they're waiting for a human to pee so that they can lick the salt. Yeah. They're very salt motivated. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So remember that homicidal ungulate we talked about earlier? He was likely habituated to human derived salts on the trails. And for his actual crimes against humanity, Billy, the one time kid, was quickly apprehended by authorities and served the penalty of death via euthanasia. They tried to figure out what was going on with him afterward, and a necropsy revealed no major health issues, but he was in a rut which in goats isn't like he's laying around feeling bummed with his routine. It means he was violently horny. Who can relate? Imogen Lovell wants to know, first time question asker, I've read that mountain goats will fight all kinds of predators, including grizzly bears. Do they fight? They must. Do they try to fight the eagles that pick them off of cliffs? Do they fight grizzlies? Um, I haven't seen anything with bears like that. Remember where they live. The the first thing a goat's going to do is run up a mountainside and most things aren't going to follow it. 
Now, mountain lions might, for example, in particular, and I know of one case where wolves have gotten into goats. And again, they're a little hard to observe, so these, a lot of these studies might be a little bit anecdotal that I can tell you about. But with, with eagles, I know what they do is the kids go beneath the nannies, and the nannies will use her, her horns and try to fend off the eagle and keep the kids safe with her with her body. But eagles will really try to go for the kids. They're a little more manageable. Once they grow full body size, the eagles don't don't get them quite as quite as badly. But I can say, and I'm glad you brought this up because we've had a few dogs get gored in the Bridger Mountains where I work. And uh, folks in, in Bozeman, we love our dogs and we love having dogs off leash. And if a dog is harassing a kid, yeah, the mom is going to come and take care of that situation. And she's equipped with these great horns with which to do that. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I, I should have said earlier about uh, human safety around goats is keep your dogs on leashes if goats are around or at least under your control. Because if your dog goes after a goat or its kid, um, you know, they will fight that dog. They'll try to get away, obviously, if they can. And if they can't, they might they might gore your dog. What about staring at you? Emily Jones wants to know. I read that one of the seduction techniques of a male mountain goat is, checks notes, staring. Is that true? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> I guess if you ever see a Billy just staring at you, you know, oh, yikes. That one's horny. How does one seduce a fellow goat? Let's dip back into the field observations from the 1964 gem on the rutting behavior of the mountain goat. So it says, Males in the company of a female were usually quite inactive. They stood for long periods of time, fed very little, and went now and again into bouts of courtship. Okay, so they acted casual at first early in the season until in the chill of late autumn, they lose their cool. And the paper continues. By the end of November, the males were in a very excited state. Their courtships were hasty and somewhat rough. On reaching the female, the male licks her flank or attempts to lick below her tail. Okay. He may also raise a front leg and tap the female on the flank or between the haunches. Meanwhile, his tongue flickers in his half-open mouth. So things heat up, and the paper continues. During intense courtship, at the height of the rut, males approach females rapidly from the rear and deliver a hard kick with the front leg between or along the female's haunches. Some kicks were hard enough to push the female forward. There was little of that careful tapping with the leg that was observed in the pre-rut. Okay, so if she's into it, it says, Sometimes females respond to a courtship approach by squatting and urinating. The male then frequently nuzzles the urine and performs a lip curl, wherein the upper lip is pulled back sharply. These are the field notes that only a true oreomnologist can make. On that note, what about any depictions of mountain goats in popular culture or movies that you feel like get it right or really wrong? Oh, one of my biggest pet peeves with almost any ungulate portrayed in any movie is they always, in animated features, they give ungulates upper teeth when most of them have hard palates, right? I mean, the, the artiodactyls at least, right? I mean, t horses have upper teeth, but mm -hmm. deer don't, elk don't, goats don't, sheep don't. They have a hard palate up there. Llamas what? have a hard palate. They don't have upper incisors. They have upper cheek teeth, right? Like they're molars and premolars, but they don't have upper incisors. They have a hard palate. So in all these movies where the animals like smiling or talking in any animated movie, I think they always need a biological consultant to let yeah. them know basic <laughs> things, you know, including they don't have upper teeth. What about the beards? Are the beards accurate? Yeah, they can have some pretty nice beards. Sometimes they're a little bit over-exaggerated, but <laughs> I, can, I can forgive that. But yeah, they've, they've got some pretty gorgeous hair. Do only billies have beards or do nannies have beards? They have fur under their under their jaw. Yeah, I haven't paid much attention to the difference yeah. between a billies and a nanny's under under fur. What what you do see is billies get these big glands behind their horns. They get huge and swollen. Those can be kind of kind of a neat feature that both and both do have glands, but the billies can get huge, big old pads back there. What are those for? Scent scent dispersion. Really? Yeah. Oh, so that's like their musk gland. Something like that, I think. Mm. Um, what about the worst thing about billy goats? I always ask this. Something's got to suck about your job, about about goats, about the work. And I will ask your favorite. Don't worry. Gosh, I can't think of, of anything that sucks about mountain goats. They're pretty great. I, I mean, I guess like when I have to like, you know, I, sometimes I get worried about falling when I chase them. 
because <laughs> I've, I've done that before. So I don't really want to do that again. It kind of hurts. I'd say that falling off of a cliff is a legit downfall <laughs> from every, every downfall. way you look at it. Yeah, every way. But so that obviously is a risk. What about your favorite thing about your job or about mountain mm-hmm. goats? Yeah, like um, it, it's it's a privilege to get to be out and, out and around this uh, this species. They take me to beautiful places, you know. Whether it's getting to observe some really rare high elevation plant life, or I got to see a wolverine this spring because of mountain goats. What? Um, yeah, I was hiking in to show our technician this basin where we we're going to do goat work, and I was going to be kind of checking on whether we could bring a trap in or not if the snows were too deep and. We saw a wolverine. It was great. Like goats take you to amazing places and I've gotten to meet amazing people. You know, the kind of people who pursue mountain goats are are fantastic outdoors people. And getting to share in those experiences and stories, getting to go to the places goats take you is just such a joy and a privilege, whether it's in a helicopter over these wilderness areas at the break of dawn and seeing these animals grazing on a 12,000 foot peak. I mean, what a privilege. I counted probably 400 goats just this summer, and it, it just blows me away that I get to do that for work. It's some of my favorite stuff about my job. And you get to be an oriemnologist. I'm going to start coining that term. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I think you should. I think it's official. Thank you so, so much for doing this. Thank you, Allie. There are tons of links in the show notes, including to some other episodes that we just talked about. Those are up at alleyward.com slash ologies slash oriumnology, which is also linked in the show notes. Follow us at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me at Allie Ward on both. Ologies t-shirts and stickers and hats and other things to put on your bodies are available at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Susan Hale, for managing that and doing so, so much more. Noel Dilworth handles the scheduling. Aaron Talbert admins the Ologies Podcast Facebook group with assists from Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltz of the Comedy Podcast. You are that. Emily White of The Wordery manages our professional transcripts. Caleb Patton bleeps episodes and both are available for free at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras. Smallogies episodes are free, G-rated, shorter versions of classics. Those are up at alleyward.com slash Smologies or look for them in our feed. Those are edited by Mindjam Media Zeke Rodriguez Thomas and Mercedes Maitland with assists from Stephen Ray Morris. Kelly Dwyer updates the website and Nick Thorburn wrote the theme music. Episodes are edited by the one Jarrett Sleeper, who is as sentimental as he is hunky. Lucky for me. And when he heard my aside about the mountain goats, he started crying again. I love him so much. 12 out of 10 would accidentally break up with because I was too afraid of getting hurt until we both were like, what are we doing? Let's just get married. And now it's great. If you stick around, I tell you a secret. And this week, it's uh, that since my dad passed away, I've been trying to cheer myself up by doing things that I've put off for years that are fun, like going to Disneyland for the day. And my favorite ride is Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. I have memories of going on that with my dad. Actually, it was my first roller coaster when I was like five. And my favorite part is always this goat at the top of the mountain. And I was just thinking like, is that a mountain goat? I looked it up. I learned two things. Number one, there are signs on the ride saying that the goat is an invasive species from human colonization. Low key, love that detail. And two, in looking up what species this animatronic goat is supposed to be, um, it's not a mountain goat. But I learned that if you keep your eyes trained on Billy the goat as you pass, it, I guess, tricks your inner ear and then the G-forces of the roller coaster feel much greater. And I have not done this, but report back if you do. Also ask like a doctor first because it sounds medically kind of sketch. Um, Also, this is coming out on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday. So thanks for the patience. My dad's birthday was Monday, September 5th and just got got a little case of the blues. So it's coming out a day late. Anyway, okay, bye-bye. special surprise for you for dessert. We brought it back from Switzerland. We're getting a mountain goat?